I just want to start today's podcast with just a thank you. You know, thank you for searching for this. Thank you for downloading this episode. And thank you for pressing play. It means the world to me that you made that decision to share this time with me. And I just want to express my gratitude for you following the podcast and for also all the great comments and social media shares and just being a part of this journey as we all thirst for knowledge about our greatest companions, our horses. So before we get started, again, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Have you ever gotten to meet any of your heroes? Childhood heroes, adult heroes, I still have plenty. I was very fortunate to meet two of mine in the span of one year down when I was a professor at the University of Florida. Jane Goodall had come through and spoke, and I was very fortunate to spend just a few brief minutes with her. And I grew up with her as a young child, watching her career, admiring her work and everything she had to overcome to impact the world as she had. Then it was just a few months later, another one of my heroes came through, and I want to tell her story today. It was a closed door meeting at the University of Florida Veterinary School, and I was able to bring my graduate students with me, and we got to listen to her talk for a couple hours and listen to her speak. Now, this amazing scientist was born in 1947 in the bustling city of Boston, Massachusetts, in the United States. And she didn't know it, but when she was taking those first few breaths of her life, she would become one of the world's leading experts in animal behavior. As she grew into a young woman, she knew she was different. Sadly, even some of the doctors called her brain damage, but her mother knew better. Because back then, autism was not diagnosed like it is today. But this young woman was a fighter. And she studied hard, and she navigated life around and even through some of the bullies in her way. She went on to earn her bachelor's degree in psychology from Franklin Pierce University, and then surprisingly went on to Arizona State to study, of all things, animal science and she got her master's degree in 1975. Then she went on to earn her PhD from the University of Illinois. Now I've worked in this field of animal science, livestock, horses, cattle, and even in some exotic animals. And in many circles, it still is quote, a good old boys club, unquote. I myself owe much to my own two mentors in graduate school, Dr. Ann Rodick and Dr. Martha Vogelsain, who had to battle the cliches and swim upriver back in the day fighting for women in science. So I can only imagine what this woman had to do in the 1970s. And to top it off, she's autistic. But autism gave her one of the most unique perspectives on how animals see the world. She is able to put herself in those animals' hooves and see the world that many of us can't see. The shadows, the sounds, all of it. 
And so she was actually one of the very first scientists to report that animals are sensitive to visual distractions. So when we talk about horses and how they see shadows and darkness and all of that is because of her and her work. In 2010, she was named Times 100 list of the 100 most influential people in the world. She has received multiple honorary degrees around the United States. She received an award from the World Organization for Animal Health. She's in the National Women's Hall of Fame in the United States. She, Temple Grandin, even has her own movie about her life starring Claire Danes. I was very lucky to meet her and thank her for all the work that she's done to improve animal welfare. And this episode's dedicated to her. And Secretariat being led, he is numbering... The horse. And the horse is the best thing in the world, isn't it? So I suppose one's always... I've always loved them, really. Ever since I was a little girl. Everybody's in line, and they're off. And Secretariat away very well has good position... The love. Oh, I never thought owning a horse could mean so much to me. The madness. What kind of a horse is that? I've never seen a horse like that before. He is moving like a tremendous machine. Their story. Mustang is more involved in the, in the early development of this breed than I thought they were, but they were. Welcome to Mad About Horses. Hello, I'm Dr. Chris Mortensen. I've been an equine educator, scientist, enthusiast for over 20 years, and animal welfare can be a sticky topic. But today I'm going to explain to you why this is so important, not just morally, but legally. There are legal responsibilities to owning horses, and we are obligated to care for them. Now, I open up with Temple Grandin, and I'm going to close that story out because I know sometimes I tell these stories, and I don't close the loop, so I'm learning to to close the loop on this one. And I was able to listen to her, it was about a two-hour meeting, and talk about her work in animal behavior, animal welfare. And I know some of you are probably like, oh, I don't want to hear about this, but you need to, you really need to. And she explained it so well. And to share some of her inner thoughts, she's always tried to ride the middle. And and I've always taken that approach in my career. I'm open to all ideas, especially as an academic in animal biology, all of it is you're open to all opinions and then you evaluate it. Well, in her career, she's just a proponent for making life better for animals while they're on this planet. And she's been attacked throughout her career from both sides, the far left on the issue, the far right on the issue, whether it's animal rights or, hey, animals are here for our use and entertainment, and that's it. And it's frustrated her, and I sensed it, and she mentioned it, and she talked about it, how hard it is to ride that center when people are constantly attacking you. So today I'm going to give you the gold standards on where we are in animal welfare. It really starts with this deep philosophical question. And I think that's what you really need to sit with. 
as you listen to this podcast and as you work with your animals. And that question is, what do we consider a life worth living for a horse? That is the gist of it. And that is the question that has morphed our views in the last 30, 40 years. I'm going to give you a little bit of history background, but really in modern times in 2024, as I record this, that question has driven where we are today with horse welfare. And that really starts with the five freedom model in animal welfare that has morphed into the five domain model. So we're going to go on this journey today. When did the five freedoms come about? And then why is that morphed into this five domain model and what that means to you? You know, what are your responsibilities? What are your moral responsibilities? And then legally, what are your responsibilities? So that's why this podcast is so important. As we get going, I'm going to start with a quick thought experiment. Two concepts. What is your gut reaction? Again, not meant to trigger anybody. I respect everybody's views. So when I say the term animal rights, how does that make you feel? And just to give you a definition, animal right advocates believe that non-human animals should be free to live as they wish without being used, exploited, or otherwise interfered with by humans. Non-human animals like horses should live as they wish and without being subjected to any desires of human beings. For us, that means we shouldn't ride them. We shouldn't keep them. We shouldn't be confining them. I, I, I get anxiety thinking about it. I love, I love my horses. Just the other day, I'm out with a wonderful horse owner, Haley. She loves her animals. She absolutely adores them. She loses money every year. We were talking about it and, and the, the vet bills and the care that she gives and the love she has for them. And the horses are happy and really kept in, in great condition. So to change this, now let's talk about a totally different concept from animal rights, and that's animal welfare. How does that make you feel? A wonderful paper, What is Animal Welfare? Common Definitions and Their Practical Consequences. Caroline Hoosen, and this was 20 years ago, but still pertinent today, in the Canadian Vet Journal. And to quote her from this paper, quote, the most widely accepted definition of animal welfare is that it comprises the state of the animal's body and mind and the extent to which its nature, which are its genetic traits, is satisfied. So animal welfare is totally different from animal rights. And so Temple Grandin, who is advocating animal welfare, better care for livestock animals, some felt she didn't go far enough and others felt she was meddling with the way things have been done for hundreds of years. And so you can kind of see from her perspective how she's been attacked, attacked, attacked. But I'll tell you what, it's hard for me to admire anyone else in the world than her. What she had to overcome, what she still has to overcome. And she's a professor still today at Colorado State University there in the United States. Incredible woman that's overcome so much. And it brings me to another story early in my career. And this one has always stuck with me for the last 20 years. I was a brand new PhD out of Texas A&M. And I got my first job 
at Clemson University as assistant professor, and then I was the state equine specialist for South Carolina, which horse population is a little less than 100,000. That's about the estimate. And my job was not only to teach a couple classes at Clemson and do research, but also be available to any of the state's horse owners. And so I would get phone calls all the time, mainly about nutrition, pasture management, a lot on toxic plants, all the normal day-to-day stuff for horse owners. Well, on this particular day, my phone rang, and this was a landline. Some of you, <laughs> you know what a landline is, but some of you may not even have dealt with landlines, but this was back in the day. And there was an old gentleman, I believe his name was Jimmy, was practically in tears saying, Dr. Mortensen, help me, help me. They're taking my babies. Help me. And I had to talk him down a little bit to explain the situation. And in essence, he was saying, they're accusing me of abusing my animals. I love my horses. He had three horses. I love them. I'm doing everything I can for them, but they're taking them from me. So I made my notes. And then I, after I hung up with him, I called my colleague who worked at the South Carolina Department of Agriculture and spoke to her. She's a horse specialist. She explained the situation that this gentleman has been kind of a problem for a while. They've tried to encourage him to feed his horses better. But the horses were in, in horrific shape. Body condition scores of twos, threes. I think one was three and the others were like two, two and a half. So that's very skinny. Not a lot of coverage. Definitely, you know, ribs showing, hips showing. It's not something you ever want to see. And they said, we need to confiscate these horses or they will die. And, and I'll finish with his story later in the podcast. But they had to take the horses to a rescue center to slowly bring them back and put on condition. And it came to find out he kept them in a paddock. It, he thought it was a pasture. There was really no grass. It was a difficult time of year. We had not gotten a lot of rain. He was giving some hay, but not enough. And it boiled down to he didn't understand his responsibilities as a horse owner. He didn't understand how to feed horses. It was just an education thing. It wasn't willful negligence. It was, I just didn't understand. And so again, this podcast, while you're listening, why we care about animal welfare. Now to give you a brief history, because I know I always jump into history and some... The reason I do that is because I think it's very important to know where we've been and where we're going. The history of the horse is so important to our own. That is why I love telling these stories. And researching this podcast, the question that came up to me in my head was, is animal welfare just a modern concern? Or is this something that's been around for centuries? Millennia? So if you go back 4,000 years, we know horses have been domesticated about 5,500 years, but let's just go back 4,000 years ago, Central Asia. Imagine the groups of peoples, the tribes or little communities that had horses. Imagine what that horse was worth to them. Now, we don't have anything in the written record, but I can only guess 
those horses were so special to them. They were a prized possession. They were something that you wanted to care for. Now, they don't have all of the modern science that we have today, but I imagine they fed them very well. I imagine they provided adequate housing. I imagine they had adequate water. They were probably very well cared for. Probably didn't live into the 30s that we see today. Again, advancements in nutrition, advancements in veterinary medicine, but still, those horses were probably pampered a tad. Not always, but I, especially the warfare and all those horrific things that were going on. But still, I imagine they cared for it very well. Because if not, if it wasn't, the horses would die. And, and you wouldn't get more horses and you wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to breed. And you would lose that status for those peoples. If we jump 2,000 years, so 2,000 years behind us now and 4,000, so, so zero, year zero, <laughs> AD, common era. Let's go to Rome. Big city, bustling city, million people. And you're a merchantman and woman. Your family is taking goods to the closest port, which is Ostia, outside Rome. And you depend on your horse to pull a cart, to bring your goods to the ships so they can go off to Egypt and other parts of the Roman Empire and bring some goods back into Rome to sell. Your entire life depends on that. And it depends on that horse pulling that cart. So again, if you think about it, those horses were probably pretty well cared for. So animal welfare, and especially horse welfare, has been with us for quite a while. When we look at these ancient civilizations to the written histories, there is a lot of philosophical discussions, especially the Greek philosophers. Early Greece, these philosophers were pushing thought, right? Where do we fit in this grand universe? especially their universe back then. And not just in a religious context, but in a moral context. So Plato, all of these Greeks that I brought up in the podcast, talking about the importance of, of feeding horses, training horses, our connection to horses, they too had thoughts on animal welfare. One of the ancient Greeks that was 2,500 years ago, Pythagoras, was actually one of the, the first written down vegetarians talking about the morality of being with animals and he thought they had souls and he was getting into some religious and spiritual context. But he was pushing the thought that animals deserved our respect. So animal welfare has been around for quite a while and that carries for the next few thousand years. Now, Horses have, have suffered greatly in history. It's not to discount their pain, their sacrifice. I mean, what they've had to go through side by side us as we struggled and through the multiple wars over the century. Again, that's why I, I just love these animals because they've given us so much. But that philosophy, moral discussion really was around for, for quite a while. Legally, when does it change? When do governments start to sit up and notice 
and start to regulate some of this animal welfare. Really, it's been the last 200 years. So this is a very interesting fact I learned doing the research for this podcast. The SPCA, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, was founded in England in 1824, 200 years ago. And it was thanks to horses because they were watching the abuse of carriage horses in the day. And these people got together to form this organization to push anti-cruelty acts. And in England, they did. They started to pass laws to make it illegal to beat your animals, which is unfathomable to us today, even though we still see it. But there's, you know, again, very strict laws. And then the America SPCA was started in 1866 in New York City. Now you see SPCA all over the world. And the laws have changed slowly 200 years ago, but now quickly in 2024. Now, where are we today in the modern era? Because I want to get to the, the five freedoms and the five domains. And that's just the quick background. I had recently just taken a trip to the island of Vanuatu. And some of you may have seen this on social media. I've been posting videos on TikTok, YouTube, and Instagram. And we planned to do a horseback riding on the beach there. I was tentative. I've been very fortunate to travel around the world to, to a few countries. And in smaller countries that aren't quite as wealthy as the United States or Europe or Canada or other parts, sometimes horses aren't in the best condition. And part of my job, you know, traveling to some of these countries is to help people change the way they manage their animals. So I had a little bit of concern, but I wanted to just, just go check it out. When I got there, I was very happy to see the horses were in excellent body condition. Because especially in Vanuatu, they're talking about South Pacific, very hot climate. How are these horses going to be kept? How are they managed? And I was interested in what types of horses and, and all of that. But I can honestly say they were immaculate condition, very good body condition. Hooves were trimmed, no blemishes. It was a quick ride. We didn't push them. And then when I was talking to some of the workers there, they turn the horses out in the evenings. They get to go play on the beach and soak their leg in the ocean if they want. Plenty of grazing and plenty of supplemental feed if they needed it. And so it just showed me that animal welfare is a concern wherever we go with horses. Now, as a science animal welfare really, and that's the development of the five freedoms and domains, didn't get going until after World War II. And when I talk about the history of equine science or animal science, a lot of the changes have come after the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s into where we are today in the 2020s. And during this period, our knowledge of animal biology, ethology, neuroscience has grown dramatically. It the field of science today blows me away to where we were 100 years ago. We know more about biology than we've ever known in our history, and it's increasing rapidly. And so this morphed into the development of the five freedom model in animal welfare. Again, developed in the UK, and this was revolutionary. These concepts 
becoming guidelines, gold standards for animal care, especially in the livestock industry, large animals like horses and cattle and others. This changed everything. And it started in the 1960s and then adopted in the 1970s by the UK Farm Animal Welfare Council. And I think we can all agree today with these sentiments. A hundred years ago, they probably would go, oh, I don't know. You know, They would balk at it. But today we, we could read these five freedoms and go, yeah, that makes sense, right? So what they are, the five freedoms. Number one, freedom from hunger and thirst. Number two, freedom from discomfort. Number three, freedom from pain, injury, and disease. Number four, freedom to express normal behavior. And number five, freedom from fear and distress. So Temple Grandin, to weave her back in, into this, her work using these models, pushing cattle ranchers and other types in the United States and then around the world to provide better care for these animals while they're on this planet was was pushing this. And then there's been pushback, but it's changed since then. Since when these first five freedoms came out and, and, and people like Dr. Grandin were pushing this. So this was a great first step, especially for horse owners. But what morphed it or what pushed it to become this five domains, which I'm going to explain here in a second. You read the five freedoms, you go, okay, that makes sense. But it wasn't good enough. We needed a little bit more. And this is the next concept I really want you to think about. And it's this idea of animal sentience. Again, don't confuse this with animal rights or even welfare. Animal sentience. I'm going to define this. Sentience is the ability to feel a range of emotions and feelings, such as pleasure, pain, joy, and fear. Some animals even experience complex emotions, such as grief and empathy. Animals are sentient beings, and this means that their feelings matter. A few podcasts ago, I talked about, in one of my classes with my students, about 50 of them, this is 10 years ago, and I asked them, do animals have feelings? And they all laughed. And I shook my head, said, okay. Well, let me ask you this. What's a whinny? Why does a horse whinny? Talked about it in How Horses Communicate. Great podcast. If you haven't listened to it, check it out. Okay. Why do they do it? It could be stressful. My friend's leaving. Uh -huh. You know, whinny, come back. But let me take another step. How about a knicker? Between a mare and a foal. Just saw it the other day. What kind of bonding is that? What, what kind of emotion causes a horse to knicker? How about this one? We, we, we all should know this one. How about a horse pinning their ears? What emotion is that? <laughs> Everybody should know that. That is anger, not happy. Leave me alone. Stop what you're doing. So do animals have feelings? Absolutely. They feel fear. They feel stress. But then they, they have pleasure and happiness and joy. Now, we were very careful as scientists to not to anthropomorphize animals, meaning put them on the level of human cognition thinking. 
chimpanzees, dolphins, those are probably some of the ones closest to us and, and some others, you know, we're, we're finding out crows are incredibly intelligent, a bird of all things. They are super intelligent, problem solving, things that we can't even, all of this is, is opening us up. So when we say some animals have grief or empathy, my first thought is I go back to African elephants where it's been observed they will divert every year out of their way to go visit a pile of bones from, say, an old matriarch. They're a female-driven society. They're old matriarchs or their grandmothers. Elephants will go to the bones, pick them up, put them in their mouths, sniff them, stand around them for hours, and mourn. That's the only way the scientists can describe it, and then go on their way. When they come across bones of an unknown elephant, they check it out for a little bit and, and keep walking. This has all led to the morphing of the five freedoms into the five domains. And this is the bread and butter of the podcast. These five domains today are the gold standards for animal welfare. And these are all the ones that we need to think about day in, day out as we keep these horses under our care. And this was developed by professors David Meller and Cam Reed here in New Zealand at Massey University in 1994. And in the last 30 years, this has morphed into, because it takes a while, they publish this, scientists discuss it, and now today in 2024, we've all adopted this five-domain model of animal welfare. Now, the five domains are very similar to the freedoms. They're just a little bit broader. And I'm going to break this down to what it means to you. But very quickly, the five domains are, number one, nutrition. Number two, physical environment. Number three, health. Number four, behavioral interactions. And number five, mental state. Now, I will say mental state is woven into the other four. So it applies to all the other, other four. So nutrition, and, and I'm going to break this down for you. So when I talked about that owner in South Carolina, he was violating this domain, he was not feeding them appropriately, so their welfare was not being met, and he lost his animals. Now, to finish the story with him, we went through some intense education. I sent him a bunch of materials. He worked with the local extension people there. The horses came back to him, and he was able to keep them last I heard. And he was feeding them. I remember he called me once and thanked me and, and he said, you know, I'm doing my best. And if he had any questions, he'd call me back. Even the facility I worked at in my graduate school, we accidentally violated domain one. This happened. So don't beat yourself up as I go through these. But in that story that always sticks with me was this was in the middle of California and California in the summer and that part of the state gets extremely hot, 100 to 115 degrees. You're looking at 38, 39, 40 C. Very, very hot, but dry, but still very hot. And we would always bring in outside mares to be bred on farm. And we had this mare in full in one of our paddocks that had an automatic waterer. You know, it's your typical half moon shaped waterer. It had a tongue in the back that the horse had to push with their nose for it to refill with water and more fresh water would come out. 
Well, one day it was extremely hot, and when we were feeding her in the evening, we noticed the tongue was up and her water was completely dry. She didn't know how to push that tongue to get fresh water. So it was an important lesson to me to always check your automatic waters, always. I always talk about it when I talk about water. Check them twice a day, morning, evening. And in this instance, this mare didn't know. Make sure your horses know how to uh, drink out of those. Uh, today, some of the more modern ones have floats. So when the water's low, they, they automatically refill. And so what we did to fix that was we put in a big tub of water and then tried to show her how to use the automatic water. Uh, but we violated domain one of nutrition because water is, is part of that. A lot of times people just don't understand because nutrition is so complex and it's really a cornerstone of equine management that, you know, they're doing the best they can. And sometimes it just takes a little bit of more education. And again, that's why I do what I do. A little bit of recent research to say, hey, we, you know, we found out that's actually not really good for horses, like feeding tons of starch and sugars and stuff. Now, today in 2024, we're like, ooh, that's not so good for horses. Another podcast for another day. But nutrition is the cornerstone of animal welfare. You make sure it's to ensure they have enough water to drink, enough food to eat, their diets are balanced, and they have a, a variety of foods, uh, and they're getting enough to maintain good condition or good health. Now, when I talk about that mental state, right, being woven into the other domains, so mentally for, for the horse, we don't want them thirsty because that's negative. We want them to have enough water to quench their thirst or the pleasure of drinking. If they're hungry, they have something to eat or, you know, the food is appropriate for them and we're feeding them appropriately. In, in a future podcast here very shortly, we're going to talk about colic and, and gastrointestinal discomfort. How do we manage them to try to reduce the incidence of that happening, right? We don't want horses to colic. It's the number one killer of, of horses under the age of 20. So nutrition is the, the cornerstone. Number two is environment. So that's how we maintain these animals. Again, if I ask you, what do horses need in their environment? This is away from nutrition, so you don't have to worry about the feed, but in environment, do they, a stall, they need fencing, right? We, we, we don't need horses running down highways or getting themselves in trouble. So they need somewhere safe to stay. If they're stalled, that probably needs, they need somewhere to be turned out, a paddock or pasture. But what else would they need? There was another instance that sticks with me when I was working with my PhD and I was looking at stress and heat stress. And I remember this mare, we would bring our mares down to the breeding shed, work them, do a little bit of the research I was doing. And then we'd run them back to their large pasture. While some of the mares ran off to the water, this mare always ran to the shade. In the heat of Texas, humid, hot, she would go and stand under the shade for a while. And then she would walk over and, and get some water. But it taught me that, that horses need shelter. They need shade, trees, something to get out of the heat if they so choose. That is where that welfare question comes in. 
in the winter, snowstorms, they need shelter to escape from the wind and the cold if they choose to. So from a welfare standpoint, you know, you can see where you're providing the, the best environment. And when they're not kept in that environment, there's a lot of stress. I remember in the A Day in the Life of a Horse podcast, I talked about this case study out of Tunisia in Africa, these densely packed mares. And I just remember reading it. These mares were so stressed. It was a very suboptimal environment. And that was the purpose of the study was to show, don't do this to the horses. Look at the stress. Look at their behavior. So when we look at what Meller and the others describe with environment as the number two domain, you know, an environment that's thermally tolerable. So for horses, like in Vanuatu, it was a hot day, but they were under the trees. They had plenty. They, they could go put their hooves in the ocean to cool off. So to me, as a, as a horse educator, thermally tolerable means they can escape and get in shade. They can also escape if it's cold and find some shelter from the elements. Suitable substrate. So that's why we talk a lot about feeding hay more or longer or, or feeding them more often. Again, another topic that, that we should address in the future, space for freer movement. So if you're keeping your horse stalled, because we do, and that's very acceptable in a welfare standpoint, but to give them optimal environment, they need that turnout time. They absolutely need it every single day. If not, then they start developing these abnormal behaviors that we'll talk about here in a second. And it's, when you roll it into the mental state, it's basically just comfort from the changes in temperature, physical comfort. They can stretch their legs. They can move with turnout, respiratory environment. So that means avoid dusty areas and barns. Barns should be clean. All of the, the, the stimuli, the smell, the taste, the hearing, all should be pleasant for the horse because that, that environment affects their mental state. Now that rolls into health. As a horse owner, it is your responsibility morally and legally across the world to care for that animal and their health because they depend on you. I know horse owners, you spend a lot of money on health and seen it colics and surgeries and just regular day-to-day -day care. You love your animals. You're doing the best you can for them. Just keep in contact with your veterinarian. And, you know, one of the things I talked about in How Much Equestrian Spend podcast is looking at getting equine insurance for some of these catastrophic uh, events that might happen. So look into that. But again, we want horses to be free from disease, free from injury. They're functional no impairment. Because again, when you tie that into mental state, just imagine when you had an injury or when you're ill, how do you feel mentally? You're drained, you're tired, you're, you're not happy. So imagine that from the horse's perspective. We want them to be comfortable. We want them to be healthy. We want them to be functional. And then that leads into behavior. So the fourth, and basically it's allowing a horse to act like a horse. You know, what are their normal behaviors, a, a day in the life of the horse? What do they do all day? What are they meant to do all day? And then as an owner, you should be able to recognize abnormal behaviors in horses. This is definitely an upcoming podcast topic, but things like cribbing, stall weaving, wood chewing, pacing, aggression, 
you know, aggression towards you, aggression towards other animals. And that just shows that the horse is mentally not well. So we want to provide them with positive experiences. And that's riding. That's exercising with them, jumping, dressage, eventing, raining, cutting, all these events that we do with them. That's mentally stimulating to them. Those are all activities that help horses be like horses and and it challenges them and it's enrichment for them. And that's very good. So with behavior, you want to make sure you do some novel environmental stuff, again, like training, uh, different challenges for them, but again, give them the ability for some free movement. So again, if they're stalled, that turnout time, if they're on pasture, they're getting that. They're able to explore and forage, bonding horses with horses is always good, Uh, especially the young horses being able to play with other young horses. I mean, just basically letting the horse be a horse. And that's the fourth one, behavior. Now that mental state, again, is tied into their overall diet, their overall environment, their overall health, and their overall behavior. So those are the standards. Those are the standards that you need to look at, say, am I feeding the horse correctly? Am I housing them correctly? Are they getting enough exercise? Are they healthy? Sometimes when horses get really infirmed, you make some of those tough decisions. I've talked to a few horse owners recently about having to euthanize their animals, and it's just heart-wrenching, absolutely heart-wrenching for all of us uh, when we have to make those decisions. But it just boils down to, are you letting the horse have a life worth living? And if you're confused and if you're not sure, because this topic is, it's robust. It's a very robust topic. Ask for help. Speak to experts. Speak to your veterinarians. If you're struggling on feeding your horse and keeping weight on them, or you think they have too much weight on them, just an example, go to madbarn.com, top right, analyze diet, click on that. Get a free diet evaluation from PhDs and DVMs. These are nutritional experts that will look at what you're feeding your horse. and It's free. But also talk to your local agencies, wherever you live in the world. In the United States, it's your local extension office. They have experts. Like I was the state equine specialist in South Carolina. Countries have that around the world. They have people you can turn to and say, I need help. I need some advice. Come walk my pastures. Come look for poisonous plants. Because it all goes back to ensuring our horses, who we owe so much to, and you feel that connection when you're with them. You always do. It doesn't matter if it's if it's my own horse or it's a horse I don't know. Anytime I'm near them and I get to interact with them, It just sparks something in me. And I know it does with you too. So that's why we need to do the best we can and give them that life worth living. Just like I started out with today, I just want to thank you, especially for those listening at this point and those that have left five-star reviews. I, I, I just thank you. You know, Iris on Spotify, Holly, Carmi, Kyoti, Nilion, and all the others. I hope I said your names right. On iTunes, if you haven't given a five-star review, if you don't mind, 
taking a few minutes, go in there. Basically, it's saying it's worthwhile to what we're doing. This podcast is worthwhile. Uh, we are starting to put this on YouTube now, YouTube videos. You can go to Mad Barn on YouTube and check that out. Always in the show notes are the links. And the, the whole goal, again, is to be a leader in equine education in a one-stop shop. So we're developing a lot of things right now. And your feedback helps, your support helps, those five-star reviews, those comments, the following, the sharing on social media, the growth that we're seeing is showing us that, yes, we're on the right track. So thank you. And just thank you for your thirst for knowledge because it's an hour of your day each week to listen to this. And our time is precious, and I know that. So I'm working so hard to ensure I deliver the most impactful information that can help you care for these animals. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Check us out, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, all of those platforms. I'm posting there all the time. Uh, you can see some of these stories that I'm talking about in the podcast, uh, the Vanuatu horses, and uh, some of the other horses I've been able to see around here lately. So take care and stay tuned uh, for another great podcast coming your way next week.